Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Thoughtful conversation about the news of the day, addressing the existential threats to America, the promise of America, the hope of America. Mm -hmm. Today, a little bit about maybe the future of America from a very different perspective, one that I I could not offer. I dare say you could not offer. I cannot. No, I cannot. For your enormous capabilities. (laughs) We're going to talk to Mark Mills. He's a physicist, which means I'm out of there anyway. Yeah, no, I'm not even in the room. I'm, not in the room. I'm, I'm not yeah. in the room. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering. We're going to talk about his new book, The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom in a roaring 2020s. I'm really interested in this interview to see what, what does he see? How does he, yeah. I'm, I, I am too, to and I'm interested to see whether I understand what the heck he's talking about. <laughs> Something tells me he'll, he'll have a way of explaining it. He's good. He's very good. Both, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love Mark. So, Dr. Bill, remember last week we talked about uh, paintyourlife.com. Yes. For folks who take your yes. pictures and they make like, you know, an artist's yes. portrait of it. And I talked about how easy it was to kind of upload your photos. You can go to their website, paintyourlife.com. Uh, and uh, it takes about five minutes, something like that. It took me and Sierra about three and a half. And we just thought of all these different port- uh, pictures we wanted to send to it. Even Manny, you know, had some pictures that he wanted us to submit to it for himself and for his room. Well, guess what? What? The portrait came two days ago. And man, we open it up in this nice box. It's wrapped. We oh, and we take it out, and it looks amazing. Even really? better than the yeah, even better than the photo review that they emailed us. Uh, it's, um, that wow. they emailed to us. Yeah. So when I looked at it, I thought, man, I'm glad we did this, but it would have been great to kind of surprise Sierra with something like this, right? Yeah. For anniversary, a birthday, or yeah, something like yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. And it's not super expensive. They got many different price options, many different uh, options as far as framing and, and, and artists. You can choose your own artist. Again, paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now, as a limited uh, time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this offer, text the word BILL to 64000. That's BILL to 64000. Text BILL to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com backslash terms. Again, text BILL to 64000. And so here he is, Mark Mills, and we are delighted that Mark was a pretty regular guest on Morning in America, <laughs> and now and now we're, we got him back on the podcast. Okay, here's here's the book, and here's my little nervous intro. He's the author of The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom in a Roaring 2020s. Now, when I got this book, it comes recommended because it's written by Mark Mills, whom we like. <laughs> but I was nervous. <laughs> and I recalled uh, we went to some island somewhere sometime and someone said let's go scuba diving and the instructor said you gotta listen very carefully and don't get anything wrong because if you do you'll drown and I decided I'd just stay on the beach okay. <laughs> so I, you know Claude and I are both here we are both got our pens out we're going to take notes we're going to do baby steps for baby feet so go slow <laughs> But this is important, and I don't mean to make light of it. You see the future optimistically. What are, the, as I understand the book, and I haven't read it yet. I've just been reading in it, and I doubt if many many people in our audience have, but they will after they listen to you. What, what are the, as I understand it, you set up like three possible scenarios 
for the future. Could we start, Mark, by you describing those, please? Sure. And of course, um, you, uh, as always, underrate your intellect. <laughs> Philosophy and law are not so not so easy, but, you know, and, and the physicists pretend they're philosophers and vice versa. So it's that's the that's the nature I, of the beast. Nice of you to say, but, you know, we're going to have our hands up a lot. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I hope my book is addressable for those uh, who are not um, who have not majored in science, although, you know, it's there's a lot of information in it because it's to make the case that I'm an optimist. And, and of course, my view is I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist and that I, I see the, the signals and the noise, to use that expression. And I'm predicting, and this is a line I use in my book, but I stole it from Drucker, the great philosopher. and Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker, who said, who said a long time ago, this great line, sounded like a joke. He said, I only predict what's already happened. Right. And, and of course, he went right. on to elaborate, right? He, what he meant was he looked at trends that had high inertia, which is a physics word, but demographics, you know, the aging of the population is predictable and it has predictable consequences. So it's no, you don't have to be a genius to say that the, the American particular, but the world in general will have more older people than it does today. Right. That has consequences. You know, but I took it one step further, and I know this is what he did is if you look around you, in this case, I look around and get tech, I like technology, and I'll get to the answer to your question, I'm sorry, but the predicate's probably helpful to see why, my, um, why I'm an optimist in an age of pessimism. If you, look around, if you look around at what has already been invented, not what we'd like to invent, and is just now being commercialized, this is the important caveat. It's not something that somebody dreamed up in a lab last week and they hope one day will be a product or a service or you know, a new cure, but rather something that was invented a decade ago, maybe two decades ago, and is just now reaching commercial viability. Those kinds of technologies tell you a lot about the future because they already exist. They're just not widespread use. So yeah, give by, us examples or, or, or sure. are you going to? So by, well, let's do the analogy. The automobile was invented in the uh, late 1890s. So it had been around for almost two and a half decades before the, uh, before the Model T, almost 30 years before the Model T, before automobile age started to go, which was, it started to go in the 1920s, really. Uh, it was several decades. This is true for the radio, for television. Uh, it's true for computers. It's true for telephones, for the internet itself. The pattern is is very common. It's remarkably common over the last two centuries that an invention that's pretty interesting or radical, you know, pharmaceuticals, polymers, plastics, um, high-strength steel, high-strength concrete. I mean, the list is really quite long. And you always see the same pattern. It looks like an overnight success for the company that did it, but it was usually two decades or three decades since yeah. the idea. So then what my book does is maps out what's already happened in the three domains of technology that define everything about civilization. And the three domains are the materials with which we make everything. Um, we, we, nothing exists without materials um, to fabricate things and make services. It's sort of obvious as soon as you state it. Uh, so a hundred years ago, we had the advent of the chemical revolution and getting polymers and pharmaceuticals, high strength steel. And then you look at the machines 
that uh, allow us to make things or provide services or move things, right? Machines, machines are essential, have been part of civilization, again, since the dawn of civilization, from simple to complex. The, and the third, the third sphere of technologies, the third magisteria in a way, uh, is information. You know, how we, how we study, analyze record, the world, record information, share information. So those are the three sort of big buckets. And 100 years ago, those three big buckets all underwent a revolution in commercialization of, of the sort of kinds of things that businesses were commercializing. So obviously, in the machine space, it were cars and airplanes, electric motors. And in the material space, it was, it was again, high-strain steels, alloys, and uh, polymers and pharmaceuticals. And in the information space, it was the professionalization of science itself at that time. But in, in, from, a, from a product perspective, it was the advent of expansion of telephony and radio. So where are we today? Well, we have in the machine space, uh, the things that were invented several decades ago, the 3D printer is a good example. And to explain what that is, is most people have a printer in the house that prints documents, but the document itself is a machine that takes an image from your computer, as you know, and, and renders it as a very thin layer of ink on a piece of paper. So it's actually three-dimensional, but it's a very thin in the vertical dimension. Right. 3D, 3D printers just expand that to print parts, print things with metals or plastics. They're printing a, a component or a, most of a, a complete uh, product. or in a, in a way, you can print uh, the way... Uh, nature grows things with 3D printers, and we literally uh, grow or print uh, parts of organs now, and soon whole organs. Uh, this, the relevance of this in healthcare is obvious. Instead of transplanting an organ from a hapless victim, uh, one can imagine, and this is no longer, again, science fiction being developed. Army is funding it. A lot of startup companies are doing it. The famous Dean Kamen, uh, who is an incredibly prolific inventor and engineer, has got a whole uh, effort devoted towards, in the near term, he believes, 3D printers that will print organs. And what, what they're doing is they use a biocompatible, you know, that word sort of explains itself, scaffold, a scaffold is microscopic in this case, that's printed and one then grows the tissue, that's your tissue, heart tissue, lung tissue, pancreatic tissue in in the scaffold that's the shape of your organ and you know presto unbelievable unbelievable incredible we also make machines today talking about machine revolution um, that manufacture things at the atomic or molecular scale which may seem like so what precision matters when you manufacture things so many things in the world that we take for granted are, are ma made with machines that do things with incredible precision not just cars but the computers we have, the machines that make computer chips work at the uh, you know, molecular atomic scale. That capability has sort of bled into the other domains, so to speak, of both sensors that will help in healthcare detection. So all the sensors and the capabilities to very soon detect something like the evil coronavirus in real time using your smartphone, the ability to do that will come from the fusion of new classes of sensors that are made with the machines, the same kind of machines that make computers, but do the analysis using the computer in your smartphone and then, you know, phone your doc and say, this, this is not the coronavirus, it's a flu virus. 
such technologies aren't theoretical. They exist. They're just not commercial in the broad space yet. And All right. The third, the third domain is, of course, the cloud. It's the, 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 the son of the internet or the daughter of the internet, so to speak. Okay. So you've described three new technologies. Is that fair? Yeah, or well, three classes of technologies. Okay. Like drones would be another, another technology in the machine space. Okay. Uh, right. That now, kind of- not everybody's optimistic about either the convergence of these technologies yeah. or them singularly, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so what's the worry? What's the worry before we get to your optimism? What's their worry? Well, the, uh, let's talk about what people are worried about. It's in the news all the time about the cloud, the technology, the sort of the, the derivative of the internet. The internet, okay. Okay. the internet is as different from telephony as the cloud is different from the internet. So what's telephony? Telephones? Telephones. Yeah, so if we go, we Take went for God's sake, Mark, <laughs> just say telephones. <laughs> I'm sorry. Here we go. You know, this, this, this I, I, I betray my roots working so, at Bell Labs years ago. There's the, enough intimidation here without, you know, using a word. Telephones. Hello. Hello, telephones. Okay. So, right, hello. So we went, we went to, everybody knows, from telephones to you got mail and AOL on the Internet. And, okay. and that was a big deal. But it was communication. Uh, you use, all of us use the cloud, in a, which is very different from communications. If I, if I say... Let's just describe something a lot of people use, which is mapping programs to find their way somewhere. That is profoundly different than a communications medium. Obviously, it uses communications to get to the data center, the big giant computers in the cloud, remotely from you. But it's not doing a computation in the sense of a spreadsheet saying one plus one is two. It's not doing that. And it's not doing just a communication I'm talk, I don't talk to the cloud. Essentially, I'm asking a question. How do I get from where I am? Computer knows where you are. We all know that because you carry around a location thing that everybody knows what that is these days, the GPS, the you know, global positioning system chip in your phone. So you're asking, you're asking uh, a remote computer to give you advice. And it not only gives you advice, which is different than a com- computation, it does it based on all kinds of inputs traffic, where you are, where you want to go. And it does it in real time. And it does it with sort of what you could call unrelated inputs increasingly, weather and, and other, other events that might be going, construction. That's pretty amazing, right? That's, that's advice giving. That's inference. Sure. Which is very different computing. Well, what if, what if, before we get to why people don't, or are worried about, what, what if we imagine that same capability in real time for supply chains, which are in, in the news a lot, and you're a manufacturer and you're worried about getting your product, which has a lot of components in it to get to your factory to, or, to, or to your service center. Or you've ordered a truck to do some service business and your truck is delayed. If you have, if you have the same kind of transparency and advice giving in inference, you, one can and can now imagine saying, well, I'm not going to get the truck ordered in time. What else is available? You could have done that work manually with a lot of effort a decade ago or even five years ago that kind of question can be answered in real time uh, in supply chains now because of the cloud which has the sensors everywhere connecting to billions and billions of people and things seamlessly on the information superhighway which is a word not created by al gore but by a bell labs physicist as it happens 20 years before al gore anyway it 
the, the highway is invisible. And it, instead of hundreds of thousands of miles of paved roads, we have billions of miles of invisible highways for that information. But the computers, the cloud, those data centers are giving you advice. A doctor is the same. Increasingly, physicians, nurses, uh, medical workers, professionals can get advice uh, in real time in the same kind of way you get advice about mapping. So that's what that but this, but is. That's the cloud. Let me, let me interrupt. But isn't there a worry about the cloud, about centralization of information, control? Sure. We're sure. setting up your optimism, but this is one of the pessimisms, right? Yeah, sure. The, okay. So the, okay. We have... Um, we have two kinds of worries that we were not new and new technologies. One is the misuse of technology, abuse of technology by the, the businesses themselves or users of those businesses to spy on you, to track you, to do things that you don't want them or to know things about you. You don't want, I'm not talking about terrorism and those kinds of things. Just, just we'll call it um, meddling malfeasance and other kinds of things we really don't want or, in the information domain, because the cloud has essentially absorbed all the information dissemination. Facebook, I think the last survey I saw, most citizens, I think 70% of citizens, their primary portal access to news is through Facebook. So it's become a, a common carrier information platform. Okay. Right? And do we worry about that? You bet. Because if they censor, they're the platform. It's the equivalent of... Yeah, yeah. Right? We know. So, yes. Is this... Is this uh, a concern. Sure. Of course it is. And the, the, the concerns are no different than not to beat history to death, but a hundred years ago, there were 20,000 newspapers in the United States, 20,000. Yeah. 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 They published three times a day, as you know, for the yeah, history book. Yeah. What could they publish three times a day in 20,000 papers? Well, it turns out they published what we now call fake news. Yellow journalism was created. Then they literally made up news of many papers, just whole cloth. It actually created a constitutional crisis, by the way. So just to give a sense that we're, we're not on new territory in terms of the issue and resolving right, it. Right. Uh, in, in 1924, I think it was, a newspaper in Minneapolis published a story about a, a state legislator, which was utterly salacious and fraudulent, completely made up and nonsense. Anyway, it resulted in the state, le- state of, of, of Minnesota passing a law that would give a judge in that state the right without a trial, a single judge without a trial to cancel the right for a newspaper to publish entirely. We would think that was unconstitutional. Yeah. It, yeah. Took six, it took six years for that to get to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. The state. yeah. Six years. And when it got there, it was a landmark case of freedom of the press. It uh, prevailed by a 5-4 vote. 5-4. You think 9-0. Yeah. Okay. So today we have the same thing. It's clickbait. Uh, censorship. We have to fix this problem. It's a, it is a problem. And so the okay. worries about that are correct. But that's this is a behavioral slash regulatory transparency issue, not a it's not a new issue in that in that sense. The other worry about cloud and computing is that it's using increasingly artificial intelligence, which is a silly, right. silly phrase uh, by itself. Uh, computers are not artificially intelligent any more than a car is an artificial horse. Similar functions, really different. Okay. Uh, but there's a lot of worry about AI and robots taking people's jobs away and causing rampant unemployment. Well, that worry is actually upside down. Right now, we have a shortage of people who want to work, can work. <laughs> we have a shortage in every domain. We that's need robots. True. We need robots. But that's, the, that's a worry that's been uh, peddled by the doomsayers uh, 
Well, for about 100 years. I have to ask you in the interest of time to tell us why the heck you're optimistic given all these risks and dangers. <laughs> well, we've always had risks and dangers from technology. So I think we can. Yeah, we've only it. talked about one. Yeah, but, yeah. but sure. talk briefly about the others. And then give us the grounds for your optimism. Well, so the, the key to economic growth is this uh, word that gets thrown around a lot, which is productivity. And in productivity, it, 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 let me just define it, but it's because it's important to understand it is you want more and more and better output, whatever the output is, healthcare, whatever the service is or product at, with lo- fewer inputs, which is labor and materials. That's productivity. That generates wealth in society. Wealth comes from the uh, uh, surplus generation of both product and time, freeing up people's time. So you get more stuff, more things, more and better with fewer inputs. That's productivity. Productivity has always come from technology progress. That's what, what drives productivity. So if we look around at every sector of the economy, including things like entertainment, but let's, let's stay off, off that, but healthcare and manufacturing, all kinds of services. Uh, we already see evidence that we are driving and about to drive more, far more rapidly a farmer productive economy. One-click shopping and e-commerce, everybody's familiar with now, especially post-great lockdowns. Which, yeah, yeah. Is that more productive? Well, yes. I mean, would I, would I to get a couple of things, would I rather drive, using my time to drive to a, a store or have it show up on my doorstep? It's profoundly obvious it's productive. But that yeah. ecosystem is made possible by the cloud, not by communications per se. That's just one of the tools. If we apply that formula, and we can, because that's what I map out of my book, to every sector, and we haven't seen it happen in every sector because it turns out it's hard to do. E-commerce didn't happen overnight. It's a lot easier to sell books and give book recommendations and move them to your doorstep, which is why Bezos, Bezos started with that. That's an easy place to start. You migrate to other things in other sectors of the economy. And we, we make everything from manufacturing to education and training, especially skills training, easier and more productive. We, I mean, we, we have evidence of maybe a bellwether in the business world is the announcement today that Microsoft has just done, I think, the biggest acquisition in dollar terms, yeah, probably of any company. I think it's of any company, certainly any tech company. They're buying Activision, a video gaming company, for $73 billion. <clears throat> so here's Microsoft, which is essentially a, business productivity company buying a video game company. What what the heck's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The underlying technologies that make hyper-realistic video games fun and sell like mad are exactly the same technologies that make it possible to upskill or reskill people in real time remotely, much way that flight simulators train pilots. That that technology is profoundly productive yeah, it's already being used in healthcare. Doctors can and are practicing surgery in a virtual simulacrum of your body that's been mapped out with imaging in advance of doing the real surgery. That's obviously more productive in this sense that you'll get better outcomes means fewer failures, which is really okay. important in healthcare. Okay. okay, now I got a question. I may be behind here a couple of steps, but one can see with all these advances, possibilities. A lot of Americans see with all these advances, possibilities. They also see risks. 
mm-hmm. right? I'm yeah. having just centralization, information control. Um, you know, you mentioned Amazon. We could talk about Facebook. We could talk about yeah. you know, Google. Um, why come down, Mark, on the side of we'll work this out and this will be good <laughs> rather than, you know, it's Orwellian and we're in serious trouble. Is that a sensible question? No, it is. Um, okay. So it, it, I don't address in the book because it would make the book a thousand pages long. The, the, what, you know, how do we make sure this happens in the, in, in a, in a way that's net benefit to everyone first, because I start with what it is that's happening because we don't know what's going yeah. on. It's hard okay. to know why we okay. should be optimistic and why we should be do something about it. Dance, you are optimistic. You oh, are yeah. optimistic. So, and I, that's what I need to know and what, what the audience wants to know. Why? So, let, so let's, let's look at what technology can now do. And in terms of these, these two things, one is the centralization issue. The other is we'll call it essentially you're asking a security question. The centralization one gets to a lot of the problems we worry about that there's, you know, a few companies run by wealthy people who we didn't elect making decisions, if you like, right, for us. So I, right. I think what we, I think what we, we have in play is, are two things. One is that the technologies of decentralization are now very powerful. By that, I mean the, the um, idea that the capacities that the Googles and Amazons have is permanently in their control, much as the rail barons, let's use that where the whole regulatory state began, the rail barons of 150 years ago, they, once they laid the track, they just owned the space utterly and completely. Right, there's a, right. There's a, there's a certain amount of that still in play, but when it comes to technology of information and, and the uh, velocity with which it's changing, most of the innovation is not in the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. In fact, we know both anecdotally and statistically that there's a kind of hollowing out going on now of the talent in those big companies. The really talented engineers, scientists, and coders are leaving to go to startups, which will become the disruptors of those big guys. So there's a certain amount of natural disruption going on. There always is in the industry, but in this case, faster than in the past because it's, it's and everyone knows it's seen that information-centric disruption certainly appears to be faster. And I think it is. So there's that factor. Maybe more comforting, more important is that the technologies of information allow us to gain uh, transparency and security in ways that other domains or other businesses don't easily do. So the you've heard the words used blockchain and nobody seems to understand what it is, except maybe the easiest way to describe it is it's, it's an incredibly powerful way to get clarity and transparency on the confidence of a transaction that is i know you signed it i know you did it which is the inverse of saying i'm securing it the blockchain provides security to its individuals in a way that other networks don't and that's the use of the blockchain not just for current cryptocurrency bitcoin which is one aspect of it it's just exploding in growth it the technology in short allows us to be confident that we can get more security and that we'll see a more of a decentralization of power. But it doesn't mean that that's going to happen next year, right? And it doesn't mean right. that it is not right. appropriate for governments and regulators to look at this and say, well, wait a minute, you guys are abusing 
your current market power. And mm -hmm. the test for this is, is obvious. Both left and right are unhappy with what is going on, both perceived and real uh, censorship or finger on the scale of news and information. But news is a very special case and an important one, which is different from the question of if I want more information about my health, let's just say, or about my supply chain, that's incredibly valuable and productive. And the businesses that are doing those things are not the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles necessarily. They may provide some of the infrastructure, some of it, but they're not, they're not the leading edge of that. There are all kinds of names of companies most people have never heard of. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them and they're big companies with billion dollar revenues. And again, names that most people have never heard because they're not purveyors of news and social media. They're purveyors of productivity. What are the things that we as a people and talk about Congress or presidents or newspapers or citizens or families need to do to, if not assure, at least give us good odds that the future turns out better rather than worse. Yeah. What's required of us? Why, well, you know, I think this isn't, I take it, these technologies, this convergence is not self executing for the good, or is it? Well, I mean, I, I, in an introduction to my book, I point out the obvious. It's possible to Sovietize any economy. Okay. 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 So the, the right. answer, to say answer to your yeah. question, sort of philosophically, not to steal your turf, is to, to make sure that we are, are participating in a democracy that isn't trending towards statism and the Sovietization of our economy. That doesn't mean that I'm a libertarian, as you know I'm not. I'm not saying that we should let the market just run rampant. Regulations are not only appropriate and needed. In fact, many industries um, would, would prefer and want there to be regulations about, so they create guardrails, if you like, for behaviors or operations. But uh, I would say that the short answer is we have to demand that we get transparency. This, I mean, this is true in politics okay. everywhere. Okay. If I want to know, I mean, if I were going to pick a, an idea of a kind of a regulation or a law that I want, I would want my elected representatives to pay attention to is I don't want them to tell businesses how, how to operate specifically. I mean, set aside safety issues. I want, I want to know what they're doing. I want transparency. This is true in government, what they're doing. I want to know if a business is using my information, okay. I want to know what they're okay. doing. With it. Okay. We, we could imagine transparency laws across, across the domain where I move the control to me, the citizen. Some people would say, I, you know, it's okay. You want to use my information? Fine. You want to use it for free because you give me free service? Fine. But I want to know that you're doing that. So I, that's a first order demand. That will get us a long way because right. once people know what's going on, they may not like it. They may like it. I mean, I, I have theories about what people like and don't like, but they're just my theories. I think the first order is, what are you doing with, and because it's almost always about information and privacy, right? That's what, that's really what this distills now, to. Does this have any particular obvious implications for education, <laughs> the education system? I think it does. Uh, I have a whole chapter on education. And, okay. and uh, so you remember, and I, I begin my education chapter with remember the MOOC. So it was only a few years ago that New York Times emblazoned on the headline that massive online courses, M-O-O-C, yeah. were going to make the university yeah. irrelevant. Gone, they said. And now people don't even remember the acronym MOOC. 
but there, there are lots of courses you can take, one can take online uh, for free. Sure. And in fact, MIT and many universities uh, make available the lectures of some of the most popular professors for free. So that's already underway. Does that, does that mean people stopped going to universities? Well, well no. I mean, they, I think the, <laughs> here, here's the, the, the thing that's fascinating. Education, uh, educators have been fascinated with technology since, you know, the dawn of the of pen and paper and the printing press and uh, the first um, overhead projectors and then films and movies. And when you and I were going to school, everybody, all the teachers were so proud of the fact they could drag a cart in with a, TV uh, and, you know, use television. When radio was yeah. first brought, some universities, many universities and high schools even got themselves a radio station, actually a radio station at the high school in order to yeah, 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 yeah. disseminate more education. What I think has happened now is uh, uh, two things. The, the facility with which things like Zoom are getting better and they're still pretty lousy. I mean, they're a lot better than they used to be. But the, the velocity with which that kind of thing is getting better has allowed something I think is utterly fascinating. There's been an explosion in tutoring, not, not the shutting of schools down so kids don't go to school. I, I write and I'm convinced of, and I believe the psychological and clinical research on this is indisputable. Kids have to go to schools. I mean, so this yeah, is not just a, yeah, it's yeah. all kinds of reasons, social, but also in learning. Learning in context, learning with people matters. However, yeah. yeah. Everyone knows that some kids learn faster, some learn slower, some need help. Tutoring has always been one of the easy solutions, if you like, but it's been very hard to do. Tutoring works extremely well in combination with traditional teaching. Tutoring has become far, far easier finding just the right tutor anywhere on the planet that can talk to the student in kind of interaction that you can have for just tutoring, not for all education through the Zoom-like platforms. It's profoundly effective and, in, and it's utterly taken off in the last three to four years. The other, the other uh, area, other than traditional education, would be what, what we call the skilled trades, um, learning a new skill. So you can learn a new paper skill online or in person, you know, how to write something or how to calculate something or how to measure it, whatever the, we'll call it a paper skill, intellectual skill, learn some history. Uh, although hearing a professor in person is, for most people, a lot more fun and engaging. There's something something elegant and subtle about a really good lecturer in person, which is not easy to replace. But skills, skills, mechanical, physical skills are very important. And again, I come back to the simulator. You know, a guy named Link invented the uh, aircraft simulator about a, literally 100 years ago. I think it was last year. And that profoundly reduced the fatality rate of teaching pilots to fly in World War II. I mean, utterly collapsed by tenfold the fatality rate. You still had to learn how to fly a plane by flying in a plane. But using a simulator first dramatically accelerated the skill acquisition. All all the big um, excavator companies, Caterpillars and Deers, all now have simulators for learning first how to operate one of those before you go on the real machine. uh, Because simulators become better and cheaper. Physicians are using simulators, the point they made earlier, to practice surgery right. first. That, that, that skill uh, acquisition is in a lot of domains and increasingly becomes more realistic in virtual and augmented reality we hear about. 
including, this is the real challenge with simulators, is you, you need to have what's called, to use a technical term, haptic feedback. That's a, uh, the, the technical term for, you have to feel like you can touch it. Yep. There are lots of technologies now that are getting cheap, fast, that allow you to be in a virtual environment, to learn how to do something, could be plumbing, and which you can feel the object that's in your virtual space. Will that replace being an apprentice? No, but it'll make it a lot easier to get there I faster. This, this, is, this is profoundly revolutionary in the skills. It really is deeply okay. revolutionary for okay. education. Okay. You were born in Canada, right? I was born and born and mostly bred there. You're an American citizen, right? I am. I identify as both now. Do you, uh, dual citizenship, do yes, you, uh, is part of your optimism because you're in America and would you not be so optimistic if you were in Sovietized state? I guess would, the answer to that is kind of obvious. Yeah. No, I came to this country, uh, you know, I worked in both countries. I went to university in Canada, but I came here after to work and went back to Canada, came back here following the jobs, so to speak, uh, you know, people that could hire me doing what I was interested yeah, in at the time. Yeah, yeah. But I would say, and, ha- and I've been, I don't know, I've been to several dozen countries, I guess. And I, and I, I study history. I'm an amateur historian, but and I, I would, I am still, despite all the uh, chaos, despite all the challenges in America, profoundly optimistic about this country. I, my epilogue in my book is about this, exactly that point. The demographics, the politics, and the culture of America are still superior in combination pretty much anywhere in the world. I mean, I'm hard-pressed to pick where you do the combination of things. A better place to be, to be a citizen, citizen or an innovator or the beneficiary of the innovations. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard. I also began my book with a reminder for people to use a Google machine to look at the history of turmoil and tumult in America in the past. We we're not, everything's, you know, this time it's different. Well, the specifics are different, but they're not that different. Okay. We had huge race problems in the 1920s, yeah, race yeah. riots. We had, yeah. Unbelievable political turmoil, uh, worried about the in the Bolshevik revolution spilling over into sure. America. We sure. had we had Didn't the pandemic then, right. which had three waves right into 1921 and killed 400 percent more people per capita. We yeah, had, yeah, yeah. And yet the American yet. economy grew in real terms per capita wealth by 700 percent in that uh, that century. Okay. okay, because of the culture, the culture changed a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it has. Of course, it always changes a bit, but I think at least my travels and seeing entrepreneurs going around the country and getting out of the bubble of Washington, DC and New York. And I, I just, uh, I don't, I don't see the country as having lost its way profoundly, but we are having the fights again and we should have these and they're the very similar fights and they're important ones to have for sensible governance Accountable politicians, uh, maximal freedoms for businesses to operate, minimal taxes. I mean, obviously, I'm a Reagan baby, as you know. I worked in the White House Science Office, so I got imprinted by, I guess, his philosophy. It stuck with me, uh, but I, it's not just an emotional stickiness. The facts show that that's why America prospered. We had the yeah. innovators here, and we let, the, we let them innovate. We let them build. Right, right, right. Let them leave Amazon, right? Or Google. We let them leave, or let them build an Amazon, and, yeah, and they'll yeah, be either and both. Yeah. And, and it's a tumultuous business market. I mean, it it is 
it really is Darwinian in America in the business world. And we, we want that. I mean, there's far more business failures. I know this as a practitioner in, in, sure. in you know, venture capital. I, I could tell you, we always read about the successes. You have to work hard looking at your history to see the failures. You know, Wang was the best word processing computer company in the world. It's gone. Most people don't remember the word unless they were of a certain age. Digital Equipment Corporation, biggest company in high performance microprocessors in the 80s, gone. I mean, Burroughs, gone. Univac, yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah, a GE, yeah. a shadow of its former self. GM, a shadow of its former self. Ford had 70 or 80% market share in 1930. It's, I mean, it's, it's still around. God bless them. But okay. you get my point. I mean, I think- I get your point. That I, 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 yes. You know, when I say I'm optimistic, people say, well, you're, you're you know, Pollyanna, you're naive. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that there's a certain underlying zeitgeist uh, in the American spirit. You know, Phelps, they, they, he got a Nobel Prize in economics in 2000, and uh, I think it was 13. I, I'm sorry, I forgot the date. And he wrote a book called Mass Flourishing, which I cite in my book. And, and this was after his Nobel Prize. And the book was dedicated, it, it focused on a- answering this question, which is what sort of your question to me. And it's a, it's a heavy read, by the way. I, I recommend it highly for those who want a heavy read because it's a very dense, it's like a textbook because it's, you know, he's the kind yeah. of guy. His unlike question your, was, unlike your light read here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, mine's a light read by comparison. Trust me. <laughs> it's, he asked this question. Technology has a feature of being a tragedy of the commons. Once you invent something, other people can borrow it, steal it, use it, especially if they're not in our country and subject to our laws. So his question was, why did America uniquely benefit throughout the 20th century, not just in 1920, from all these technologies? We, We clearly uniquely benefited economic terms. Why? And his answer in, in a nutshell is it's, is our culture. And, it's and he he's not again he's not a Pollyanna naive. Yes, there's been changes yeah, and there's been yeah, degradations, yeah, yeah, yeah. but fundamentally, uh, our culture I think still stands. In fact, the very debates we're having over everything from masks and coronavirus and vaccines to jobs being gone to suppression of the the nature and the character of our debates. I mean, it sounds like being a Pollyanna even to say this is the fact that we're having the debate way we have it here is a measure of of our systems. You you know, you get silenced, you get yelled at, you get canceled, but boy, the people that get canceled still find a way to talk and get out. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks, Bill. Podcasts have changed the way we get our news, entertainment, politics, everything. Mm Mm-hmm. They've rewritten the script. Uh, somebody said to me this morning, I don't read op-eds, but I do listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. We hope you listen to this one. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewritten the script, too, and that's called Masterworks. Okay. Masterworks enables you to diversify your portfolio. This is for investors. Mm-hmm. And potentially protect it from market volatility. And you do so by investing in contemporary art with Masterworks. Ah, okay. Now, I'm not up on contemporary art, but boy, it's hot. Mm-hmm. And people love it. They're the fintech startup shaking up the alternative investing landscape. It lets you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Invest in Picasso, Warhol, 
uh, invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Masterworks has an industry-leading research team, and it's created the first and only platform where anybody can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by millionaires and billionaires for generations. See, now you're talking my language, because I'm not a big art guy. Like, I sit there and I look at it, I don't get it. But I'm a money person. Give it a try. Our listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art slash bill. Okay. Masterworks.art slash bill. Join a new generation of investors. This is a new deal, boy. This is the the modern world. Join that new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash bill. And folks, see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Masterworks, give it a look. All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.